0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight. The conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for our podcast, we have the second part of a two-part episode on Paul and his missionary friends. Now, Scott, last week we talked about uh, some of the. More well-known friends of Paul in his missionary journeys, and this week we're going to be talking about um, some of the ones that are a little less well-known on his journeys. But uh, on the outset, let's just r- remind our, our listeners to make the point about why was it that Paul had these missionary friends? Yeah, I think the
1: I think we need to re-emphasize that uh, that Paul was not a solo pastor; he was not a lone apostle. Paul was surrounded by a network of friends who, with whom Paul was in friendship and with whom Paul shared the ministries. You know, he, he says Peter, I, I say that Peter and Paul had parallel ministries, expanding the gospel about Jesus into the Roman Empire, Peter concentrating on Jews and Paul on Gentiles. But Paul understood friendship, uh, and I would put it this way, that he he breathed the air of Aristotelian friendship, and he dieted and ate uh, a sense of Jewish friendship. So let's put it this way. Aristotle understood three kinds of friends. Some friends are there for, uh, for utility. They help us do things, you know, the sort of person that helps you mow your grass or shovel your snow or you get gas from them or you help they help you at Ace Hardware a second kind of friend is someone who brings pleasure to you you like to hang out with them but you know other than hanging out or you like to go to baseball games or you like to shop with and then the other kind of friendship Paul had is, so there's there's utility there's pleasure and there's virtue and the virtue friends are, they emulate one another, and they are together for mutual. They have a mutual yearning to grow in the virtues. But Paul modified this and baptized it in a Jewish concept of love. Whereas I uh, discuss in a couple of my books, including Fellowship of Difference, Paul understood love to be a rugged commitment to a person uh, with three virtue, three characteristics: presence, they're with one another, uh, advocacy. And that is they are they know they are unto or they are for one another. And then third, and this starts to touch on Aristotle, is unto And that is they are ruggedly committed to one another, to be with one another, to be for one another, but they want to grow in spiritual Christ likeness together. So they hone one another and sharpen one another and help one another mature in the Christian faith. And Paul did this with people like Timothy and Titus and Epaphras and Epaphroditus, uh, Tychicus, all these people. There are all kinds of people mentioned at the ends of Paul's letters that we ignore. Mm -hmm. And so so today we want to look at a couple of the other friends that are are largely ignored when we talk about the Apostle Paul.
0: Yeah, and I think the first one, good place to start would be with Priscilla and Aquila and um, their their role in discipling others and continuing the church. When was it though that Priscilla and Aquila really showed up in Paul's life? Well, we, we see them showing up
1: Early in Paul's ministry, and uh, we see, you know, the the sort of uh, contribution that they make in Acts chapter eighteen is is the focus passage, where where she and her husband uh, Aquila Priscilla. Now Priscilla has two names. Prisca is the official name, and Priscilla or Priscilla is the diminutive form, and Luke either knows them better, and so he calls her Priscilla, Hmm. or Paul, out of respect, uses the more formal name and always calls her Prisca. But they're married to one another, and they had a ministry. Uh, Aquila is a Jew from Pontus. It is likely that Prisca was also a Jew. They lived in Rome. They got kicked out of Rome uh, because of Claudius' decree, Uh, and they take up residence in Corinth. They make tents alongside Paul. What's it like to work all day with the Apostle Paul? I can tell you what it's like. He's going to be preaching to you, (laughs) talking to you, and discipling you, and showing you how to do two things at once, working on tent making and preaching the gospel. And then Paul uh, takes them with him uh, on his trip Toward Syria at the end of the second mission trip, but drops them off in Ephesus, a great place for contemporary archaeologists. Mm -hmm. And they co-ministered in Ephesus for a long time. And noticeably, it is Priscilla, and notice the the order of names. Paul begins to call them, and Luke begins to call them Priscilla and Aquila, not Aquila and Priscilla. So she has a dominant or leading uh, role in this relationship uh, probably because of her status mm-hmm. that status could either be economic or more likely it has to do with her gifts in ministry and they have to correct Apollos and as a they, they Priscilla and Apollo uh, Priscilla and Aquila disciple Apollos and then Apollos goes on to have a great ministry. So, uh, then in, they are famous for their ministry in, in, uh, in Ephesus and in Corinth.
0: That's cool. You know, and they're
1: I- back they're back when Paul writes Romans, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are back in Rome and they have a house, you know, they have a house church in Rome. So here we have them. Uh, here's the way I'd summarize. They get kicked out of Rome. We don't know when they became Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, then they, uh, Uh, They have a ministry in Corinth, they have a ministry in Ephesus, and then they have a ministry back in Rome. So three different church communities know this
0: couple very well. Yeah. You know, I think it's fascinating you asked the question about what was it like to work with Paul? Um, Because I think that's probably where a, a ton of discipleship happened with them, obviously. And I think that probably seems to indicate that line about teaching of more is caught than is taught. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just imagine that had to be such a influential part in their life and their friendship as they got to know each other um, and just caught the, the vision of the kingdom that Paul lived out, he embodied. And you know, I know in my life, that's, that's how I've grown the most, is just c- catching things from people who really live like Jesus. And um, know there's fruit that comes in my life from that.
1: Yeah, well, a couple things that I learned from, uh, you know, Paul is on the move. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can't say where did Paul live and and have an answer. He lived wherever the Lord, you know, if you read the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and then you read the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you get the impression that the Corinthians were really irritated with Paul because he didn't live up according to his plans. And Paul says, I'll be there if the Lord tarries and if if I make it and if the Lord guides me. He has all this. He's he's going wherever the Spirit is leading him. Mm-hmm. And Priscilla and Aquila were willing to relocate their, mm-hmm. their uh, home and their setting in order to continue the ministry of Paul as they learned to discern and listen to the Spirit's guidance in their own life. So Paul calls them co-workers. He says they in Romans 16, he says, they risked their lives for me, mm-hmm. which has got to indicate that they were in very difficult persecuting situations, and they didn't care one bit. They stood right up for the Apostle Paul when they needed to, and that put them in, in difficult situations. So they were willing to relocate and to be connected to Paul and to suffer for it. But they they are known for ministering the gospel together. So in a sense, you could look at them as Paul's peripatetic friends, mm-hmm. or you could call them his married missionary friends, mm-hmm. or on the road ministering the gospel uh, and uh, clearly involved in the establishment of churches in three or four or five different locations, depending on where you locate them. So they had. A big impact on the churches in Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, like you said, they got. A, they're such a great vision for the household nature of the early church, aren't they? And and just it being a community, it being your household.
1: I mean, this is this is so important to understand about earliest Christianity in the Pauline mission. Uh, this is also the case with Jesus, uh, but it's it's sort of yeah yeah we know that because he's always having table fellowship. Mm-hmm. And he's telling stories at the table but Paul's ministry uh, was connected to a synagogue and from the synagogue to households yeah and those households then were converted and when you when the head of the household got converted everybody got converted everybody got baptized uh, women women and children and everybody else I know I'm pushing against you right here cheer <laughs> you'll be okay yeah um, the um uh, but, but it was in households. And that's why in Colossians and Ephesians, and this shows up also in First Peter and in early non-canonical uh, early Christian uh, literature, is that they're addressing husbands and fathers and mothers and wives and children and slaves and masters, is because the church established itself through the synagogue into households, and then those households became uh, house churches. And every one of those house churches had a sort of a patron or a pastor who was probably the household owner and like Philemon, who also had ministry to those people and they all needed help from Paul. So Paul was involved in with all these friends who were household patron pastors who needed advice because they had a job to do and they were bivocational. And yeah. this stuff is the reality of Paul's ministry rather than, you know, he had a church office, the pastor has a church <laughs> office, and he comes in at 9 o'clock and the secretary provides him a cup of coffee and he spends the rest of the day preparing sermons and calling people and having friends friend, and then on Wednesdays he plays golf with his pastor friends. This is not how it worked for the Apostle Paul.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a little different, but um, yeah, definitely an important model of ministry that we understand and allow to influence how we do life and following Jesus. You no, know, I want to move on to one of the really lesser known missionary friends of Epaphras and, um, you know, Paul's interaction with him. Uh, what do we need to know just simply about him, who he was, and his relationship with Paul?
1: Epaphras, uh, this is a very interesting story about Epaphras. He, he is from Colossae, which is this wonderful little Lycus Valley. You go up from, you go in toward the, the middle of Turkey, 100 miles or so, and you run into this Lycus Valley, which was a fertile area for textile industries. And uh, Colossae was, was an important city in the first century, but in about early 60s, mid 60s, destroyed by an earthquake and largely unheard of since then. But um, Epaphras is from there, and he probably is converted under Paul's ministry during Paul's second mission trip. Most of us, we don't know for sure, but we've all agreed, so therefore we have this sort of conviction that um, that he was converted in Ephesus through Paul's ministry. It wouldn't be at all unusual for a talented person to find himself, uh, if they live in Colossae, to find himself uh, occasionally or even quite often in Ephesus. And within a few years, I, I, I think Epaphras is probably converted when he, at about 50 AD, and by 54 or 55. Now, this has to do with the dating of Colossians, and I think Paul wrote the letter of Colossians from Ephesus, not from Rome. So I think that within four or five years, Paul has written a letter, four or five years from Epaphras' conversion, he's written a letter to Epaphras about issues in the church at Colossae and at Laodicea and probably at Hierapolis, but we don't know for sure. Now, if you date if you date Colossians to the Roman imprisonment, then it's not as quick a turnaround Uh, but the, I think I'm with Tom Wright and a number of scholars today, uh, who think that Paul, uh, wrote, uh, Colossians from Ephesus. Now, let's just, let's not argue about that. Mm -hmm. Within four to five, within a couple of years, Paul has sent Epaphras back to Colossae and he's established churches in several households, in several communities. And immediately he's running into problems and he's encountering Sort of a Jewish, I mean, it's a, it's an odd philosophy that combines Judaism and probably some ascetic practices, and some belief that if you if you practice these ascetic practices, you may end up having angelic visions, or you may end up worshiping with the angels. And I think Epaphras is thinking, "What in the world do I say?" Yeah. So he he visits with Paul, or he writes to Paul. Or he travels down, and says Paul, I got to have some help. What do I need to say to these people? And so Paul writes Col- uh, Colossians uh, uh, to help out with what's going
0: on in that church. What do you mean, just real quick, about ascetic uh, practices? Yeah. Like, just uh, so we understand, rigorous fasting, okay, uh,
1: dietary concerns. Uh, the the belief is that at Colossae, there was a group of people causing problems who through their rigorous ascetical practices, rigorous fasting, let's say, mm-hmm. having visionary experiences of God, and were telling people that this is the highest form of religiosity and spirituality, and you need to do these things. So Paul says, do not touch, do not handle. This is sarcastic language. Mm-hmm. He's quoting his opponents. And uh, so Paul is opposing that group. Well, I think I think it's likely that Epaphras is like, what do I say to these <laughs> Now, yeah. there's something else about Epaphras that is noticeable in Colossians. In chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about Colossians, that Epaphras had to learn that his vocation required a very intense prayer life. Epaphras is the only person that Paul praises for uh, praises because of their prayer life. Hmm. And his prayer was that, the this is Paul summarizing Epaphras' prayer By the way, Epaphras was a gossip to Paul, a good gossip to Paul about what was going on at Colossae. So he tells them about their faith and hope and love, etc. But uh, Epaphras' prayer for the church at Colossae, according to Paul, that he relates to the Colossians in his letter, is to stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. That's what Epaphras is praying for when it comes to the church at Colossae. So, you know, there's another thing here. Uh, Epaphras Epaphras had a powerful ministry in his hometown. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we ignore this. Uh, Many of us do do not minister in our hometown and probably have done very little in our hometown since we were in high school. I know that's uh, my case. Mm -hmm. Uh Epaphras gets converted under Paul and Paul says, You got some really good connections in Colossae. We're gonna we're gonna stick you right in the middle of all your friendships and your family and your connections. And I want you to preach the gospel to your family, to your friends in your hometown. I think that's a very, very impressive a record on the part of Epaphras.
0: Yeah, because that can be a difficult thing to do. You got a lot of history and who you were, and it changes where you are. And I think that's a you know that's a good example uh, of what it seems for Epaphras of somebody uh, of Paul reaching him for Christ. Raising him up in discipleship and to follow Christ, and then releasing them to ministry. That's a here at Parkview. I mean, that's that's what we wrap our whole vision and, and mission around of why we do what we do. It's to to reach people who are lost. It's to raise them up and to release them into ministry. And it, we need every step of that process to be able to do what God calls us to do. Yeah. Um. You know. Uh,
1: the, the other thing that I, I think we should notice about Epaphras, because this is characteristic of. So many of Paul's, uh, named friends mentioned in his letters. And that is, Paul constantly uses, uh, important terms for them. I mean, he, he affirms them by the labels that he applies to them. So he calls, he calls Epaphras a dear fellow servant. Now he uses the word, uh, loved, beloved, agape to sundulu. And he calls him a faithful minister and he calls him a servant of Christ Jesus. Three different expressions where Paul is publicly affirming Epaphras in front of his hometown churches. Now, what's it like to have the apostle Paul affirm you publicly and go on public record about your faithfulness, your service, your, your belovedness? I mean, these are, these are marks of friends. This isn't Paul just using rhetoric to get these people to listen to him. This is Paul being authentic and honest about the people who were close to him, people like Epaphras. So I'm impressed with that. Yeah, that's definitely powerful. You know, there's another side to this, Chaz. I'm going to interrupt here because I, I don't know uh, how this is going to go, but I, I'd like to insert a topic. Uh, That is rarely discussed, but is such an important aspect of ministry and is such an important aspect of living uh, as Christians with other people. And that is Paul had friends who failed him, uh, who were uh, that Paul would, you know, that that Paul suffered for that, that Paul said, "I, I thought I trusted this person and look what's happened. Uh, for instance, uh, Paul knows of people who uh, let's just say this that Paul has friends who fail theologically. So in Galatians chapter six, I call that group the the circumcision or the circs, the circumcised uh, party. Is is that they're running behind Paul's ministry? They know him. They know what he's doing. They know his success and they're trying to take Paul's converts for their own benefit into their own sectarian party and going into Paul's churches and saying, you know, Paul didn't have the guts to tell you the whole gospel. We're here to tell you the fullness of the gospel. And that, you know, I, I've seen this so many times in churches today. Some some people that I know follow uh, certain pastors and theologians and authors and... Yeah. Podcast people who have all these theories and they get into churches and they try to take over the churches on, you know, uh, through their theology. But the big point is they make them question. They, they, they force people. Well, well, they try to, they insinuate that the people are not fully faithful. They've not fully absorbed the full gospel, the whole gospel, you know. Yeah. Uh, what Calvinists sometimes call the whole Council of God. Yeah. But if you embrace this, then you'll be fully uh, uh, in the fold right. and that's right so in in Paul had friends who did this who who failed theologically he had friends who caused divisions in the churches. one of the one of the most interesting the, uh, themes about Paul, as you read in his letters, when he gets really irritated with people, he won't use their name. So in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 18, he begins to launch into some people he's being critical of, but he doesn't use their names because he's so critical of them. He doesn't Mm -hmm. want to uh, give them that kind of standing and credit. But they were creating divisions in the church between Jews and Gentiles using language like the strong and the weak. And Paul seems to turn things upside down and inside out and reverse their language. Sometimes Paul had friends who were quarreling with one another, and it disrupted churches. Paul talks about Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4, who were causing all kinds of trouble in the church, and they they had competed with Paul, they had contended with Paul for the gospel, they were co-workers with Paul, they fall out with one another, and they cause all kinds of disruptions in the church. And then Paul tells a story about a man named Demas. Well, he actually, he doesn't tell much of a story. He gives us a couple lines. Here's a friend of Paul who abandoned the faith and returned to the world. Demas, he said, whose love for the present age has turned him back and he's left me. Yeah. And, and so, friend, let's not, let's not create a network around Paul where we think everybody loves Paul, adores Paul, makes everything work smoothly for Paul. Paul struggled with the church at Corinth. The whole church at Corinth was (laughs) constantly at odds with Paul. Uh And he had to send Titus, who became his reconciling friend, uh, to go back and forth from Ephesus to Corinth, Ephesus to Corinth, all delivering messages, delivering letters. Paul cannot hardly wait till he hears how the Corinthians have responded. Uh, but then we have a guy like John Mark, who Paul loves, but he abandoned him on the first missionary journey. And then on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take him along. And Paul says, no way, I don't trust the guy. And so he leaves. He goes with with Barnabas, and they go off to minister somewhere else. And Paul goes on with the second missionary journey. But later, we hear that Paul is, is back in tune with John Mark. Peter is in tune with John Mark, and we see reconciliation. So we have a lot of tension. Some of Paul's friends, though, were just flops on him. They, they failed him. They, they just didn't succeed where Paul thought they should succeed. Some of them turned against Paul. Some of them caused problems for Paul. And this was a part of Paul's network of friends that we have to recognize as a real part of genuine ministry.
0: Absolutely. And to know ministry's rough and ministry's tough and people oftentimes don't do what we think they should do, what we think God wants them to do. And, uh, and there's pain involved because just like you know, Paul cared deeply about those people who weren't making good decisions for their life. In ministry, when we commit to be with people, there are going to be things that happen that just frustrate us out of our minds. But um, I, I, I don't know. I, I know I've definitely been encouraged as you talk about that to know. It was a struggle for Paul, and um, we shouldn't have expected anything less but a struggle for us, I guess, at times, too, in our ministries.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I've had friends over the years that were good theological friends. You know, we talked about everything, and who get, a, get attached to somebody else and you know, all of a sudden I've become a bad guy to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I've done this to other people myself. And so this is this is the reality of the Christian life, that uh, we're human, that we're sinful, that we make mistakes, but that uh, we should be pursuing reconciliation as much as possible so that we can minister the gospel more effectively.
0: Not so. a doubt. Well, thanks for joining us again today as we've talked about Paul and his missionary friends. I uh, hope it's been, if nothing more, an encouragement for you and your ministry to know that we need friends, but sometimes we have friends um, that we've built relationships with in our ministries that it doesn't always go the way that we'd like. Um, but want to remind you again that if you got questions or would like to see us talk about something, please email those to me at crobbins, that's C-R-O-B-B-I-N-S, at seminary.edu. And we're going to have an episode upcoming where we'll just do uh, listener-asked questions. So thanks again for joining us, and uh, we hope you have uh, a wonderful week.